We'll begin turning in your Bible to John chapter 18. We'll be looking at the arrest of our Lord Jesus today and what that has to do with us today here in his church. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, as we come to this story in your word, that you would help us open our hearts, convict us of sin, show us from this passage how we are fallen, show us our need for you and our, not, not our own righteousness, but your righteousness, the righteousness that saves and delivers and redeems so that we might spend eternity with you. And so we pray that you would just open our hearts understand, to understand your word, teach us from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so this week, to introduce the text, I'd like to... I thought I'd share another passage from Scripture, just give a, an overview of it. And the passage is 2 Kings chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm not going to read directly from it, but you can kind of reference it. It's an interesting little interlude in Scripture. You know, 1 Kings, you have the prophet Elijah, and he's doing a lot of his work. And here in 2 Kings, right at the beginning, you have Elijah still, but his ministry is drawing to an end. And here in this passage, he's going to make a prophecy concerning the new king, Ahaziah. He's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And if you remember Ahab and Jezebel, they didn't uh, fare too well in 1 Kings. Um, they were everyone's favorite Bible couple. Well, here's Ahaziah, the, uh, their offspring. Well, Ahaziah, we hear, falls through the roof of his house somehow. And now he's sick. And so he then called upon the god Beelzebub, or Beelzebub, it's a foreign god, a common false god of Israel, one that Israel often chased after. And he called upon this god to see if he was going to be well or not. Well, Elijah, the prophet of the true god, found out and prophesied that he would not live, but that he would die soon. He wouldn't even be able to get up out of his bed before he died. Well, of course, Ahaziah wasn't going to have that, and so he sent three separate armed groups, complete with a captain and 50 other soldiers, to go get him down from this mountain where he was. And the first two groups came, and they commanded Elijah to come down. They said, come down from there. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, fire will burn you up. Well, he was a man of God, and fire burned them up. Fire consumed the first two groups of 50 soldiers and their captain. So the third man who comes and sees uh, 102 charred corpses probably comes to his senses finally and begs for his life, actually, from Elijah, this man of God. So Elijah comes down. An angel of the Lord actually whispers to Elijah, Go down with them. Do not be afraid. And so he does, and he goes down, and he still tells the king that he's going to die, and, and the king does die. Pretty fascinating text, and if you keep going through the book of Second Kings, you get into some more interesting uh, passages where Elijah actually goes up to heaven in a chariot of fire and never dies, and his uh, disciple Elisha begins his ministry uh, fairly violently as well. It's pretty interesting stories there. But let's consider this with the text today, that Jesus here is about to be arrested. He's about to be hung on the cross and killed, and his followers are likely to be arrested too. And 
It was a night that there was a whole lot of fear. This was the night before the Passover, so there was a full moon out. You can imagine this, this scene in the, in the, in the uh, garden, Gethsemane, this olive tree garden. Lots of trees around. It's kind of like this haunted forest scene. And on top of that, the sound of this large contingent of soldiers moving forward towards you to arrest you. And you're just a fisherman. How would you feel? Well, of course you would feel pretty, pretty scared, I would think. And, Jesus, and knowing Jesus is able to free himself, yet he isn't. Why? How do his disciples react? Well, we're going to consider Jesus' reaction, the soldiers, and our own reaction, I think, as, we, as we'll see how we would have responded maybe when we were faced with the plans of an immortal and all-powerful God. So we'll look at this in two points, Jesus, the I Am, and then Peter, the Defiant. And so with that, let's read the text. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of John chapter 18. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a few things as background info, some things that John doesn't cover. doesn't mean they didn't happen because John didn't cover them. He just chose not to cover them. John doesn't give us the whole garden narrative, what's going on in this garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't even call it Gethsemane. But we have that in the other Gospels. Jesus goes into this garden to pray. Remember, he had just left the upper room at the Passover feast. He had prayed for his disciples in John 17, which we talked about last week. And now they've gone out into this garden. And it, we are told in the other Gospels that when he prayed, that, he, that, he, that his sweat was like great drops of blood. So weighed down by the events of the evening, 
past, present, and future, that he sweat his own blood. Pretty incredible. And on top of that, his friends were going to sleep on him after he asked them to keep watch. Let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26 to get this account. Matthew chapter 26, I want to read a few of those verses to kind of give us some context. Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. Starting at verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So could you not watch me for one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so, here in Matthew, we're told that this great multitude has come to get him. A great crowd is coming to get him. John uses a technical term here, a band of soldiers in the ESV, or you might see a, a detachment of soldiers. And in the Greek, it's a technical term for a portion of a Roman legion. A Roman legion was a very big number. It was like 6,000 soldiers. And so this was a detachment. A lot of commentators kind of go back and forth on this. But they usually settle around the number 500 or so. So you combine this with the priests and their officers and everyone who's been coming to get Jesus. And then this is a pretty large group of people. I think a lot of times we've seen in like movies and our flannel graph Sunday school experiences that this is like just a handful of people with swords. This is actually a, kind of a big army coming to get a, a rabbi, a few fishermen, a tax collector, and a few other guys who we don't know their occupation. But for the last three years, they've been walking around with a rabbi, a few fishermen, and a tax collector, so they're probably not all that armed or dangerous. And so here comes this giant army to get them. This full force coming to get Jesus. This is a very tense situation. Lots of adrenaline. Lots of fear. We can't even, I've never been, in, I'll never, hopefully never be in a situation where an army's coming to get me. Sounds like a bad action movie or something. But here's Jesus in the middle of this. Here's his disciples in the middle of this. And so we'll pick up with the first point. Jesus, the I am. Jesus and his disciples left the place where they were went to another place, and we're told that this is a normal place for them to go. This is where they normally would have met, this, or met. This is a normal hangout for them. 
Verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, went with lanterns to this place, and he knew that Jesus and his disciples often met there. So that's where he leads them. And so notice this. Where did Jesus go after he left the upper room? He went to a place where he knew Judas would find him. He didn't go hide, though he definitely had time. Remember he told Judas, he says, go and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. He had time to hide if he wanted to, but he didn't do that. He went straight to the place at the exact right time to meet this army that was coming to arrest him. I mean, can you even imagine the sound of all these soldiers clanking through the forest at night? Again, it's a large group of soldiers. If you've ever been to a stadium, you kind of know the sound of people moving, or at least that's something I pay attention to. I don't know if anyone else does. Just the sound of people moving, lots of people moving in a general direction. It's a sound. People are loud. People are usually not very quiet when they're not trying to be. Some people are loud and when they're trying to be quiet. And so can imagine this group of people moving, having all this metal on. It's a pretty loud noise going through the forest, moving on purpose through the woods, armed and ready, coming after Jesus. It would have been pretty frightening. Frightening. Yet when they arrive, what does Jesus do? Does he hide in the back? No. He walks out to them, says he comes forward and says to them, Whom do you seek? So he walks out right in the midst of them and asks them a question. Jesus should never cease to amaze us in this in this way, that even in the midst of death, he's calm. And he's steady, even though we just read that he was troubled to his soul, that he was anguished, that he cried drops of blood. He was calm. He was steady. He trusted the plan of the Father. He just got there praying, your will be done. Even if this cup can pass for me in any way, let it happen. But your will be done. He willingly was doing the will of the, doing the, will of the Father. And Jesus would go quietly, but not without making an impression on the soldiers there. And so they said to him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Remember, we've discussed the I am statements of Jesus in this book. There are lots of them. And we know that this statement of Jesus wasn't him just like placing himself or identifying himself in a normal way. He was literally saying, I am, I am. Ego ami in the Greek, I am, I am. This isn't a normal way to address oneself. This would have reminded the listeners of the Old Testament Yahweh. I am who I am. Remember when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, in John 8. What did they do? They picked up stones to stone him. This wasn't a normal way to address oneself. This was saying, I am the one who was I am in the Old Testament. And so when he says, I am he, like toy soldiers, they all fall down. They drew back and they fell to the ground. 
Roman soldiers were the finest killing machines of their day. Yet when faced with the great I am, they were as dust. They drew back. They fell to the ground. And we really have no idea what happened here, what it looked like. I like to kind of picture this uh, scene from the Lord of the Rings, the first Lord of the Rings movie, when Sauron hits the ground with his weapon and it goes, everything just kind of flies back. I like to picture that. That's probably not what happened. Again, I tend to go towards the action movies. We have no idea what was going on, but can you imagine being a Roman soldier there, being amongst your other Roman soldiers, this elite fighting force, a man speaks a few words, and you are overcome with some force that throws you to the ground. I'm sure this left many of them in disbelief and in wonder at the same time. Who is this man? Who is him? Who who is he? He's a rabbi, but suddenly you realize you're toe-to-toe with your creator, with the God of the universe. Of course they drew back. Of course they fell to the ground. Had he wanted to, Jesus could have dashed them all to pieces right there. And it wouldn't have been the slightest bit of fight at all. Matthew 26 also tells us that if he had wanted, he could have summoned 12 legions of angels to come at his aid. That's 72,000 angels. In Revelation, we hear that only four angels are going to be dispatched to wipe out a third of the world's population. So imagine the havoc that 72,000 of them could dish out. That's a lot. Did any one of these men who carried weapons and torches that night mean anything? No. Jesus went willingly. It was as he wanted. And consider this. Consider this as you consider what we just read. Even while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Our creator, our king, our, our, our redeemer, the Lord of creation that speaks and men fall to the ground, went willingly to his death at the hands of his meager creatures, subjecting himself to the weapons of mankind when he had all power and glory at his disposal. It's pretty incredible that he went willingly. And that brings us to our own response to this. And we see our response, I think, in Peter's response. Peter the defiant. Peter often gets a bad rap, and his mistakes will pile up even more as we go through the rest of this chapter. Peter's a very interesting man, and I think a lot of us can relate with him. And again, consider the situation. Here's Peter, a fisherman, not a fighter. He, like, gets on a boat and goes and catches fish. He follows the rabbi around for three years. He's not a fighter. He's terrified. And on top of that, he's very passionate, as we see in the rest of the the Gospels. He's often impetuous, calling out even his, his Lord at times. And he shows us this again here. He draws his sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the temple servants. This is a story we hear in all four Gospels, actually. And we read in Luke that Jesus even touched the ear of the man that had his ear cut off and heals him, assumingly 
putting his ear back on, I guess. Then he gives himself up to be arrested right after that, which I can't even imagine being the one of the people that had to like put him in shackles at that point, uh, watching him throw everyone to the ground and then just putting a man's ear back on. But they still arrested him. So what was Peter thinking? Afraid, angry, combined with his frequent lack of thinking before acting. He just went up against this whole mob with his little sword for the sake of Jesus, which seems like a very heroic thing to do, right? Like, yay, Peter, we like your attitude here. Yet, what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then he went on. Jesus conceded that evening as one who could actually take on his foes and win. Jesus was the only one there that could have dealt with the situation, and he laid down. Peter, one versus how many ever hundred, couldn't have done nothing. He should have followed suit, but he didn't. Now, let's think for a minute. How are we just like this? Well, I'll tell you a story from my own life that helps, I think, that demonstrates this, and this is one that's happened in the past few years. I think particularly right after I left ministry full-time and became a school teacher here in Murray, leaving my previous church was, was a hard thing for me to do. In many ways, I, I didn't want to leave. I liked that church quite a bit, and I liked the people there, but it was the right thing for us to do. I would rather have just found another ministry position before we left there, but we weren't really given that option. So I ended up teaching school, a position that I never dreamed could be right. So what did I do after being given this hand from the Lord? I drew my sword. I began applying for church positions all over the place. Going for two interviews, doing phone interviews, Skype calls, all this crazy stuff from here in Western Kentucky, and I was applying all over the country, essentially. And every single time I interviewed with these churches and these search committees and different things, they all just went very strangely. Either something odd happened that would make me not like them, or I did something that they didn't like me for, which was most of the time. Um... <laughs> And slowly, I began to see that teaching is what the Lord had for me. And so I put my sword down. And here we are, 20 months into a church plant, still in Murray, loving what we do here, knowing that this is where God has us, but it wasn't without a fight. And so why is it, brothers and sisters, that we fight against the will of God? Jesus told Peter, consider Jesus' and Peter's interactions all throughout the Gospels. What did he tell Peter? It has to be this way. Remember what he said to Peter. Peter, and he told the disciples this, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And what did Peter say? May it never be, Lord. You're not going to do this. No, you're not, Jesus. And Jesus said, stand behind me, Satan, to Peter. And then Jesus says, Later on, I'm going to die. And Peter says, well, then I'm going to die with you. He's changed his tune from one extreme to the other extreme. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You're going to deny me three times. 
And it wasn't like I could open up my Bible and read, Thou shalt teach biology and plant a church in Murray, and all of your interviews are going to be discouraging. How could I have known that? If I could open up Scripture and read that, that would be very nice, but I can't do that. I couldn't have known that, right? And there's some sense in which we'll always struggle with what God is doing in our lives, and I think that's a good thing. We never want to be... Uh, one of these that kind of goes into the closet and gets into a trance and comes out with some special revelation from the Lord. I think he shows us little by little, daily, what he wants for us, and that's good. However, with Peter, and oftentimes with us, we are told directly what's going to happen. We are told directly what we should do. And so we don't struggle just with the unknown, but we oftentimes fight against those things that we know to be true that we know to be the direct will of God, and yet we still continue to draw our sword and fight. It was the Lord's will to be arrested. It was the Father's will for Jesus to give himself up willingly. It was the Son's will to lay down his, to lay down his own powers and be arrested. And yet Peter fought against it. And yet we know the things that Scripture says, Right? And we fight against it. We draw our sword. We go to war against the one who could call down 12 legions of angels on us, yet instead hung on a cross for us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. It's a great passage. I almost thought about just reading from this point into the book of Hebrews and let that be the rest of my sermon. It really does preach to you, the book of Hebrews does. Um, So I encourage you maybe this week to do that. But let's read Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. And consider what we've just learned about our Lord, Jesus, about what he's done. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death, or though through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And who is that? That is us, the church. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered and when, suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that a good thing? That our Lord Jesus became like us. That was tempted. Was he not? In the garden. Lord please. If it be your will. Take this from me. But your will be done. Was he tempted to thwart the Father's will? Was he tempted to sin in this hour. And free himself of this task? Sure he was tempted. And it's for that reason. That now. I know that he can help me when I'm tempted to do the same thing. He has known every temptation that I know. 
and yet he has come through without sin. And so I can never say of my Lord Jesus, well, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through, because he does. Our sin is always, every sin that we, over, that we go through is a temptation to thwart the will of the living God. To take, out our, to take out our sword, just like Peter did, and to take matters into our own hands. Didn't Peter just watch this group of soldiers fall on their face when Jesus spoke words? Didn't he just do that? I mean, right just a few seconds ago, right before he drew his sword and tried to fight them all? It might have even reminded him of the time that Jesus stood up in the boat and said to a storm, Stop! And it did. Or the time that Jesus walked on water water, rather than coming to them in a boat. With all of those memories and thoughts, he still drew his sword to save him, his friend to save himself. Daring, but wrong. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We worship the Lord Jesus to whom all creation bows its knee, worships and calls him Lord. Yet we are still convinced that we have the, cor- that we have the market cornered somehow on knowing what's right and when it's time to fight for ourselves. Remember Ahaziah. Did Ahaziah want to die? No. He fell through a roof. He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to be some kind of warrior, and yet he like slipped and fell, and now he's dying. He didn't want to die, so he wanted to go find out from this false god that he wasn't going to die. He wanted to have Elijah taken away, because maybe if I can just get rid of Elijah, then it won't come true. But that didn't work. Keep reading Second Kings. In the next chapter... Some boys make fun of Elisha, the new prophet, the new man of God. And what happens to them? The Lord calls bears out of the woods to destroy the boys. Why is that? The Lord takes his will. He takes his word very seriously. And so, I don't think that we should be worried about the threat of she-bears anytime soon. That would be bad to have to worry about that, I think. I would definitely be convinced into living the straight and narrow. But why don't we have to worry about that? Because Jesus took the wrath that was due for me and my sin for those times that I think that I can do it on my own by drawing out my sword and fighting it. He took that wrath and he nailed it to the cross. And so what fight is left for us, brothers and sisters? There is no more fight. There's no longer a need for Peter or me, or to you, to draw your swords, somehow fight our way to victory in Jesus. We have victory because of what he did for us. And so let us live in such a way to bring glory to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to lay down our arms. You went willingly so that we wouldn't have to fight. And if we did have the fight for righteousness and goodness and mercy and those things that you have given us, we'd give up early. We'd quit early and we'd be defeated. But you have done it. You have become our righteousness. You you were the sacrifice for our sin. We are now saved because of what you did. We have victory because of you. You are the warrior. You are the one who fights for us. 
We thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to live in, in that way. Help us to live in such a way to bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.